Welcome to episode seven of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China covers a huge landmass and borders 14 other nations. Throughout its long history, its people have lived in fear of attack or invasion. Indeed, memories of Japan's invasion of Manchuria and the war which followed in the middle of the 20th century continue to shape China's view of itself as a vulnerable country which needs to attach paramount importance to national security. As a result, China maintains a formidable army, and as its economic wealth increases, so does its spending on defense. Today on the China in Context podcast, we'll consider why China remains on a war footing and what that means for its neighbors and for the world. I'm pleased to welcome a guest who has the perfect background to talk about these issues. He's George Magnus, who's written extensively about China and is a research associate at the SOAS China Institute, University of London. George is also the author of the book Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. George, welcome back to China in Context. Now, when I read through articles about China in the English language media, I often see words like truculent and assertive. I want to hear your view. What words do you think best describe China's approach to self-defense and national security? Well, Duncan, I, I think the words truculent and assertive certainly do apply. And um, I don't think they always did. I think that's something that really has changed. I would say it predates Xi Jinping a little bit, actually. He came to power in 2012. Um, and I think even under Hu Jintao and Wen Jubao, we, we did see in the latter years of their decade in power uh, a shift in, in uh, position of China. I think it's partly opportunistic, right? Um, I mean, the West went through a systemic crisis in 2008. Um, I say the West because the Chinese call it the Western financial crisis. We call it the great financial crisis. But uh, that crisis, basically, I think China saw as proof, if any was needed, that the Western model was flawed and would take uh, I don't know whether they ever believed it could be repaired, I'm not sure, but they certainly saw that as a kind of a carpe diem moment. It was a, a time where China's economic heft was beginning to become more and more prevalent and noticeable. And it was a time when the West was seemingly now you know, in, in decline. Um, I mean, the pandemic, barely more than 10 years later, has probably convinced them even more that this is the case. Um, so I think that um, it's partly opportunistic. I think they see the West as basically opening a, a window. Um, I certainly think they believe that the Trump administration uh, was complicit in opening that window. Um, and uh, self-confidence, I think, is also part of this picture. Um, China has grown uh, like gangbusters, as everybody knows, during the last 10 or 20 years in particular. Um, I think we shouldn't forget also that there is a certain degree of insecurity and paranoia uh, that's going on as well. Um, so the uh, prickliness that I think we see in uh, the reaction of China's leaders to Western criticism or rest of world criticism, the um, way in which um, hostile foreign forces, uh, I use that phrase 
literally uh, in quotes because the Chinese use it, um, are at work uh, in Hong Kong and in uh, the South China Sea and in other areas of contention, um, is uh, it strikes at the sort of feeling that the Chinese have that, you know, there's somebody out there that's out there to get them. Now, this is partly born out of their uh, interpretation of their own history. So I, I think it's in, in conclusion, really, I think it's a sort of a mixture of, um, of uh, self-confidence that derives from their economic significance, opportunism born from the pandemic and from the financial crisis, and, um, and insecurity. So through your study and your research, you've gained a deep insight into the ideology of China. What's your understanding of the connection between China's current goals of becoming the world's biggest economy, becoming more self-sufficient in technology, and of strengthening its defences and maintaining national security? Well, I think the, the connection is one which I think China has understood for quite some time. And I think in, in this regard, um, I would say that the United States, and Britain, Europe, uh, other countries are, are latecomers in a way. Um, and um, the, just to contextualize it a little bit, if we think back to the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was always a kind of a big ideological adversary, but never really an economic threat. Um, Europe for America in the 1970s and Japan in the 1980s were an economic threat, but they were never really an ideological or political adversary. Uh, but China is both. And I think China has understood for uh, quite some time that the way to bolster your internal security, uh, in other words, social stability from a Chinese point of view, and bolster your kind of image and uh, effectiveness abroad is to be economically strong. So this intersect between economic security and national security, I think is something they've understood for some time and still feel very um, sensitive to that. In fact, uh, the way the world is changing actually reinforces that notion. The problem, I suppose, is that we also now think the same way. So whether it is about technology or whether it's about trade or whether it's about uh, standards in terms of internet protocols, you know, in where whichever direction you turn to, there is some in, interconnection between economics, commerce, and national security, um, and we're all feeling very, very sensitive and values-oriented about that. But when we look around the world, it's clearly not just China that links economic stability, trade, and national security, is it? Uh, the United States also identifies economic security with national security. How do you think the thinking of the two countries compares? Conceptually, of course, they, they're basically grappling with the same uh, subject. And I think the uh, American National Security Review, which is uh, published every year, actually in 2017 had a chapter. Um, uh, it was the second chapter of the review in which their subtitle was Economic Security is National Security. So, you know, they're fully paid up members of this club, so to speak. I think what we think that the United States values its national security as a sort of a way of not only protecting its citizens uh, within the United States, but also American interests abroad and American values, liberal values, should we say. Uh, I think in China, they also value national security a lot, but I think my sense is that the the most important part of that national security kind of calibration really is the the security of the Chinese Communist Party. 
um, whose kind of mission basically in life is to rule unchallenged. And since Xi Jinping is such an important part of the centrality of the control mechanism of the Communist Party, um, you know, his personal interests obviously are tied into this as well. Of course, China values um, the uh, long-term aspirations of living standards for its citizens and, um, you know, wants the best for its people. Who doesn't? Um, but actually, these are all, you know, whether it's food security or technology security or trade security, um, all of these are basically subsets of the bigger uh, kind of political um, mission, I think, in China, which is the the uh, sacrosanct position of the CCP, of the Chinese Communist Party. Some writers say that China is trying to shake off a century of humiliation. Can you explain to us what that means? Yes, it, it really basically harks back to the 19th century, when China was pretty much carved up by uh, foreign powers. So Britain, Russia, Germany, Japan. I mean, there were kind of enclaves and um, so-called treaty ports that were established in what the Chinese have always labelled as un unequal treaties, because these were treaties which uh, were very much in the interests of the occupying powers. I mean, China was never occupied in the way that, say, you know, India was occupied by the British. Um, but there were cities and regions where foreign powers basically had special privileges. And China's what they regard as their century of humiliation is really is what they feel they were they were robbed of a century of economic and and um, political development by the the actions and uh, indemnities charged uh, or levied by foreign powers which were finally shaken off of course by the establishment of the people's republic in in 1949 so on the issue of defense China has officially announced it will raise its defence budget by 6.8% in 2021. It's presenting this figure as being a modest increase. Do you think that the 6.8% figure is a true reflection of the defence budget increase in China? What do we make of the figures? Um, I'm not sure that it is a true reflection. I think if we look at the, the, the announced increases you know, for what the Chinese have as the same sort of pot of expenditure over time, we can see how that is changing. And we can also see, obviously, as China's GDP goes up, that, um, you know, I mean, it's defense, uh, strictly defined defense spending is just about 2% of GDP. But 2% of $16 trillion is, you know, a lot more than 2% of a much smaller GDP was 10 years ago. So there's no question that, you know, China is catching up. Um, uh, and trying to uh, make good its uh, what it has regarded as, as its deficiencies in the past, particularly not just in the army, but of course in the, the PLAN, the, so the Navy, and its presence in the, in the South and East China Seas. Um, but there are, you know, there are other kind of security bits of the budget which probably need to be added onto that, which are probably not captured in that number. So how powerful is China's army compared to the United States? I had been looking at some numbers. I mean, they, they obviously have, you know, a million more men under arms than, uh, as far as we can tell, than the United States. They have about two and a quarter million men uh, in the army compared with a bit over a million in America. Um, uh, they have uh, probably this kind of equivalence, more or less, in terms of tanks. They probably have much more artillery. 
Um, uh, the Americans have uh, many more aircraft, um, but China is catching up very, very quickly in terms of naval craft, particularly um, uh, destroyers. And uh, of course, they're building aircraft carriers. There's still a kind of a, a dominance, but the United States and the Pacific fleet has. Um, but um, it's being kind of chipped away at all the time as the Chinese, um, uh, I mean, obviously have the, have the money to be able to afford to do that. You've written that the authoritarian and rigid nature of China's governance system is a threat to the global order. But you also say it's a threat to China itself. Why did you come to that conclusion? Well, I've been kind of thinking about this, obviously, uh, since my book was published in originally in hardback in 2018. But and this was obviously before the pandemic. But the pandemic has really uh, kind of cemented, in my view, uh, in my opinion, at least, that um, that authoritarianism is very good at doing some things, but not everything. So if you, as we've seen, have a major public health emergency and you're able to introduce and implement draconian measures to contain that pandemic, which China did in 2020, um, you can achieve results which are quite spectacular, especially when you compare with the ways in which uh, a lot of other countries, particularly in the Western world, have, have struggled uh, to do. But uh, authoritarianism and uh, rigid control are not really phenomena that we associate with successful economic development, um, where when particularly when we prize things like innovation and uh, creative um, kind of developments that spawn productivity it's basically that's the that's the holy grail that we're all after is is how do we become more innovative and more productive as the basis on which to basically become richer and spread the goodies around our citizenry that's uh, kind of a common uh, goal i would say um, we have no empirical evidence that authoritarian countries are capable of doing this successfully, which doesn't mean to say that China can't, because I think in the digital era, um, and with all the unique properties that advanced technologies have, it's would be churlish, I think, to say categorically that an authoritarian country cannot pull off the same degree of success and, and um, um, you know, coverage of, of uh, productivity that we all are chasing. But I think, I think the odds are stacked against. I mean, I'm, I mean, you can't rule it out. But I think that openness, transparency, the rule of law, creative destruction, giving people the opportunity to, uh, you know, disagree and dissent and, um, tell the boss that they don't agree that this is the best way to do things. I mean, we think that these are important things behind the way that our economic and, and technological systems work. Um, so we'll see whether China will be the first country to make authoritarianism work in the same way. Thanks, George. That was George Magnus, research associate at the SOAS China Institute and the author of the book, Red Flags. 
There's much more about China on our website, of course. It's SOAS, that's S-O-A-S dot A-C dot U-K. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.